Welcome to This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Now is your chance to get caught up in all that's happening in technology around Akron and the rest of the world. Now here's your host, Gene Destro. By now, you've probably heard about flight cancellations in early January caused by the rollout of 5G technology for mobile phones nationwide and how the FAA got telecom companies to agree to delay deploying it near airports until they could work out some safety issues. But what you probably haven't heard is exactly why that was and continues to be a big deal and how it will continue to affect aviation safety for years to come. First, a description of what's at stake from the chairman of the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, Democratic Congressman Peter DeFazio of Oregon. Having a dropped call is way less serious than having a dropped airplane out of the sky. During a House Aviation Oversight Committee hearing in Washington on February 3rd, members, including DeFazio, outlined a breakdown in communication between the Federal Communications Commission, which is responsible for allocating radio spectrum to mobile carriers, the Federal Aviation Administration, which is devoted to air safety, the National Telecommunications and Infrastructure Administration, which was supposed to relay information between those other two agencies, the aviation industry, and the telecom industry. Republican Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana. We found ourselves in this absolutely ridiculous, inexcusable situation after knowing for years that there were challenges here, that there were issues here, and finding ourselves in a situation where at the very last minute, their claims, cries, demands, what have you, to delay deployment in something that was entirely preventable. Issues had been raised not months before, but years and years before. And we found ourselves in this situation. There's something called Parkinson's Law. Parkinson's Law is that you're gonna use every bit of time available to you to finish a task. In this case, we didn't even do that. We saw two very capable agencies, or three, if you include NTIA, just simply sit here and, and play chicken with one another, or whatever ridiculousness happened, And now we ended up threatening aviation safety. We had flights canceled. And let me tell you something. Tim Clark, CEO of of Emirates, the airline, said, quote, this was one of the most delinquent, utterly irresponsible instances he has seen in his aviation career. This is the, the CEO of a company of an airline. There's no excuse for us to be in this situation. This is what you would expect from some other country without the governance structure, without the strong civil support structure that we have in the United States. It's embarrassing, and I'll say it again, ridiculous, and it's inexcusable. The the traveling public expects that airlines are going to be safe. We already have enough uncertainty related to schedules and weather and other things that we don't need to create our own problems further disrupting or creating uncertainty in airline travel. And FAA Administrator Steve Dixon talked about their ongoing concerns. Our analysis of the wireless company data has allowed us to target anticipated problem areas more precisely, reducing the impact to both industries. And while we have avoided significant disruption to commercial aviation, we recognize that some communities and operations have been affected because we have not been able to fully mitigate interference risk for certain radio altimeters. Now, we know from long experience that early and open data exchange between everyone, stakeholders and regulators, 
has proven to be critical to identify and mitigate safety risks. Aviation remains the safest form of transportation because of our commitment to being data-driven in our processes. And we will lean on it as we set new standards for altimeter performance in the new environment that's created by the 5G C-band deployment. Spectrum is a limited resource, but the demand is essentially infinite, and we know that it will increase in coming years. The FAA's primary concern is and always will be the safety of the aviation system, but we firmly believe that by working together, 5G and aviation can and will safely coexist. But because Dixon said while they have things worked out in the short term for commercial aviation, that's not true for all kinds of aviation, I got in touch with Walsh University President Tim Collins. Collins, who is a former U.S. Air Force fighter pilot, also flies his own private plane and did research in the past on aviation technology like flight altimeters. The radio altimeters are basically used in low visibility or high density places, so where there's a lot of airplanes and where the weather's really crummy. Because what it does is it takes, uh, from the bottom of the airplane, it shoots out a beam underneath the airplane and then uses computers to calculate the return time as as the signal bounces off the ground and comes back up to measure height above the ground. And all that data is used for the NAV system, it's used for collision avoidance systems, it's used for terrain avoidance system. And all of these things were built a long time ago. And so they don't have the ability in them to filter out signal noise, you know, beams that can come from something else because they never expected anybody else to be operating with those radio waves. It was sort of like, I'm the only one here, you know, on the baseball field. I can just, you know, throw the ball around and nobody cares. But now suddenly what's happened is there's 100 people throwing balls around and you're not sure where that ball came from. So that is the fundamental problem with the radio altimeters. And um, so we have this high-speed cell service and we have... um, providers that want to use it, but we have airplanes that are already using it, and we are unable to sort of assure ourselves that we can de-conflict the signal. Now, the providers, the cell phone providers, they, they've they been working on these signals, and the airlines have been slow because they didn't really, I don't, I don't know why, but they've been slow to work on what are the things that are really uh, helping us to understand risk? And the FAA, of course, their whole job is airline safety. We have the most complex air traffic system in the world. But they want the data to prove that the risk is not there. And so um, that means that we have to test these 5G transmitters and receivers. We have to do some testing on all these individual pieces of equipment. So the FAA has been kind of rolling out every two weeks or so uh, restrictions on some of the airplanes that might be operating in low visibility or high density, you know, really busy airports. Now, the airlines agreed, I think it was um, 50 of the largest airports around the country that they wouldn't, you know, I mean, sorry, the providers agreed that around the 50 of the largest airports, they wouldn't turn on the 5G capabilities because we need to understand what kind of safety zones or buffer zones do we have from a tower that's bouncing around these cell signals 
and an airplane passing by that is, you know, using its radio altimeter and the confusion that might occur if the signal that comes into the airplane is from the provider and not from the bounce back. So that's what's happened. Now here in Ohio, I think, um, you know, six major airports have been, been cleared good uh, where they have at least one run runway that's completely compatible and you know, safety is um, always the first driver, and so it all seems to be fine. But not every airplane can can come in there, and not every airport can do that. And in those six, even here in Ohio, not all the runways are compatible, but they all have at least one. So the six, you know, these are the big ones, you know, Cincinnati and Dayton and Columbus, Cleveland. I think Rickenbacker and Wilmington Park, you know, are the other ones. So the airplanes themselves, like the 737, you know, there was a big delay for there. And that's because these signals are not just about the radio altimeter. It's also about the auto throttles. It's about ground proximity. It's about thrust reversers. And so there's a lot of places this data is shared. And that's what the FAA is trying to get at. How can we reduce the risk? How much do we understand? And that's why when they talk about the smaller airports, it's going to be a long time until we really figure out with, you know, high confidence that it is operating on a non-interference basis. What the manufacturers need to do is build in the technology to filter out a signal that comes from the airplane and is looking for the return as opposed to just, you know, a spurious signal that comes in from someplace else. Let's say that the manufacturers were to come up with altimeters that could filter out these signals yep. and they yep. could be safe. How hard would it be for them to just replace all the altimeters in all the airplanes all over the country? Super expensive. Super expensive. And so this is the FAA's job, is they're always trying to balance risk with cost and concern for public safety. So let me give you just a different example. So whenever there's an airplane accident or a train accident, you know, we'll all, we all hear on the TV, you know, the National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, you know, will investigate and they'll let us know what happened to that crash. So the NTSB investigates from a safety perspective and then makes a series of recommendations on what needs to be done. And those are passed to the FAA who has to decide, okay, which ones of these recommendations are we going to actually implement? So you can go to the NTSB. They have like the most wanted, you know, the, the 10 top things that they've demanded that the industry does, but the industry doesn't do because the government doesn't make them. And cost is always part of the calculation. I mean, in some sense, you could ground the fleet. Okay, that would solve the problem from safety, but that doesn't help us for air commerce. Right, so they're, right. They're, they're, they're making the trade. So the way we have to do it, I think, is, you know, look at a lot, there, a lot of this is software dependent. You might need some additional hardware on airplanes, but sometimes the filtering can be just done, you know, with a software program where it can tell the difference between the carrier signal and so it's not mistaken with a corrupt altimeter signal. But to replace that, you'd have to design it. You'd have to manufacture it. And then, you know, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of airplanes you'd have to go back in. It could ground them for who knows how long to replace all that equipment. So it's not a practical solution to just say replace them all quickly. Over time, of course, they will get replaced. 
So when we implemented next generation air traffic control, which is what we're operating at now around the United States and around the world, we took years understanding how that's going to be and what kind of equipment needs to go on the airplanes. So it used to be when you and I were flying on Southwest Airlines and we're going to Florida, you know, we'd climb up to 35,000 feet and there wouldn't be another airplane within five miles of us or within, you know, 2,000 feet of us. Really large amounts of distance that were established between airplanes because they were based on rules that were built when we didn't have technologies that could see, you know, where other airplanes were. And then as these technologies got developed, now we can crunch them in and you can stack them a thousand feet apart, a mile apart. You can bring them in a lot more so you can get a lot more airplanes into smaller part of airspace, which supports, you know, one more travel. It's kind of like going to the two-lane road to the four-lane road to the interstate highway model. But it's also for when the weather's bad, that you have enough technology now that you don't need to just kind of, we'll bring them all in one at a time. We can kind of have them lined up, 80 of them, and we'll just cycle them in. They call that flow control, is what the FAA calls that. So this is why we've really cut down, I know it doesn't feel like it sometimes, but we've cut down on the kinds of things that used to happen at airports when the weather got bad. So you could do that, and ultimately that will be the answer, is that we'll have to modify the software or the hardware, or maybe even both, for radio altimeters everywhere. But, you know, it's one thing for an airline to do it, and it's another thing for someone in a private airplane to do it. And so these have to be thought about also with not just commercial airplanes, but, you know, the airspace is filled with commercial, it's filled with military, and it's also filled with what we call general aviation. That's people like me that are just out there flying around. You know, I have to buy all that equipment myself. And so when the FAA makes a rule change that puts on more equipment, unless the safety was really significant, there's usually a fair amount of pushback. Because if if it's viewed as that's a marginal improvement for something that's low risk, then people question why we have to do that. Another important point of this is, is there is already some separation inside that C-band for where the airlines are operating and where the telecommunications companies are operating. That's called a buffer, if you will. So a radio altimeter is operating in the 4.2 to the 4.4 gigahertz band, and the wireless is at 3.7 and 3.98. So let's just say 3.7 to 4.0 for the wireless, and the altimeters are 4.2 to 4.4. So there's a 200, you know, dot two gigahertz separation, which is double what it is in Europe. In Europe, it's only a hundred. There's only a dot one that separates it. So. You know, the the airlines rightfully argue back, we have a buffer already built in, and that does a lot to mitigate the concerns and the safety concerns that people have. It's, it's not, you know, a completely different band. And what I mean by a different band, the way to think about that is, oftentimes it's, if it's in a different band, it's like you can't hear it. So people, I think, sort of get this with hearing, you know, cats can hear at a frequency that we don't hear. And so this is it's sort of that same thing. So there there are some things that just the way it's being implemented that contribute to a safer environment. But of course the FAA wants it to be a hundred percent safe. The airlines do too. I mean we all do. We want it to be very safe, but it's never gonna be a hundred percent safe. 
I mean, you can't guarantee 100% that that engine is not going to catch on fire. It might catch on fire, even though we've got all these procedures about the way we refuel and the kind of fuel that's going in there and the operating environment we use it in, the parameters for the engine, the inspections that we do, you still can't guarantee it's not going to happen. So that's where we're at in this conversation is how much risk is acceptable to all of us. But I think we have to accept perfect or zero risk is probably not going to, you know, rule the day. Okay. Well, I guess in everything, you can't make cars 100% safe. Right. Yeah. Excellent example. Yes. And you can't make walking down the street 100% safe. But if cars have seatbelts and if people stop, you know, at a stoplight when they're trying to cross the street, then you're managing or mitigating your risk a little bit. So that has been fascinating and really responsive to where I was coming from this morning. Just very briefly, I wonder if we could just transition to the new program that you have there at Walsh University with regards to providing degrees in aviation, which you didn't have before, and it's something new, and how is that going, and how does it work? It's a Bachelor of Science in Professional Aviation. So there was an accident in Buffalo, New York, a number of years ago, where an airplane, a commuter airplane, crashed in the winter, and when they looked at the training that the pilot and the co-pilot had, they had basically not done their training right, and so they handled the airplane incorrectly when they encountered an icing situation, and they crashed. So in response to that, one of the things the FAA did in the name of safety was they said, hey, we think that pilots need more training, more qualification before they actually get into the seat with commercial paying passengers. So they implemented what we all call the 1,500-hour rule. It used to be you could, if you had 500 hours as a commercial pilot and you're working on your next level, you know, your, your flight instructor and your airline transportation pilot ATP certification with 500 hours experience, you could become a co-pilot for the airlines. And now it went to 1,500, which most pilots fly somewhere around 250 hours a year, maybe 300. So you're talking it added years and cost onto getting people qualified so that they could become an airline pilot. At the same time, the FAA changed the retirement rules on pilots from age 60 to age 65. And so all those, so all those that were approaching age 60 and would have had to quit, you know, they're, they're still healthy, they're still young, they still have to meet all their medical requirements, so they stayed on. And so here we are now in 2022, and there's a big wave happening with all those 65ers are retiring. We're thinking there's going to be somewhere between a 10 and 15% growth in aviation. And so it's creating a huge shortfall of pilots to the tune of like 14,000 a month is what we're short worldwide in trying to meet the demands of air commerce. So the FAA came along, modified the 1500 rule and said, you know what, if you've got an associate's degree, you know, we can back it down to 1250 and if you've got a bachelor's degree you only need a thousand hours and then you can get this restricted ATP which lets you still start your job and all that and then once you get your 1500 then you can be a fully qualified you know airline pilot now the airlines have always used a bachelor's degree as one of those filters in the hiring process because they recognize you know the maturity and the stability and the thought process that comes along with a graduate of higher education and the life of an airline pilot you know it's about 90 percent 
95% sheer boredom and 5% sheer terror. And in that 5%, when things aren't going well, they want somebody that can think, can think fast, and will do the right things, which is why until about the last decade, most of the hires for the airlines were from the military because they're so highly trained. And they said, we want a military guy sitting there for that emergency situation because that's what they're trained to do in a way that no one else is trained. I mean, U.S. military pilots are the most highly trained pilots in the world. But the demand has far outstripped the supply. So about a decade ago, more than half the pilots being hired were non-military just because there weren't enough of them. So this bachelor's program that we're working with American Winds, where they're offering in Akron the flight training, and they have students now that are working on their associate's degree, we've partnered with them, and so they'll be able to finish up all of their flight stuff. They have a fast-track program a lot faster than it takes in most places because of the way they're doing it and the structure they have to the program. Marrying it with now you can get your bachelor's degree, which will bring them right to the top of the pile for airlines that are hiring new pilots, which should get them out there faster so they can get it done at less cost and their probability of getting that best job right when they're done goes sky high. So we're partnering with them. They're using their students. We started with what we call a two plus two. They come to us with that associate's degree. Then they take this top off stuff for basically all their major for their bachelor of science in professional aviation. And they finish their four-year degree when they finish all their training with American Winds or flight training. And they're out there available now for work. Anything I didn't ask that you feel like you want to add? The 5G thing, is, it hasn't been well explained. People don't really know what's going on, you know, the public. And so I think that there, there's some reason for concern always with new technology, but I don't think there's, you know, reason for panic at all. The airlines, they want to operate in the space, so they, they want to be a willing partner, as they've always been with the FAA. And the FAA is trying to do the right thing and managing the most complex system in the world. So I, I think everyone's intentions are in the right place. There's a little communication. There's some technology issues that have to be overdone, but I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. That was Walsh University President Dr. Tim Collins. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590-WAKR and WAKR.net.